Welcome to Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. My name is Stefan Dubier, and I am your host. And my guest today is Jennifer. She is 46 and considers herself, in her own words, a super boring conservative liberal. She's juggling so many different things in her vibrant, colorful life right now. Being a loving mom to her transracial adopted son, Parker, who lives with bipolar disorder, caring for her husband, Kurt, who almost died from cancer, and whenever there's any time left in the day to worry, she's addressing her own health concerns and deeply rooted trauma. She says that what she's most proud of is survival, because she had a traumatic brain injury as a child and grew up in a toxic and abusive home that did not exactly set her up for success in life. Yet she prevailed. She fought and won. Jennifer gets to work in her dream job as a therapist and social worker, where she's able to help countless others with their own battles. She's part of a nonprofit, and despite all of the hardship she has had to face and is currently facing, she simply oozes positivity and resilience. So, no, Jennifer, you're not boring at all, far from it, actually. I'm so happy you are here and that I get to help you share your story and inspire others. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about abuse, trauma, infertility, cancer, and mental illness. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Let's hop in a time machine and take a trip to your past and visit little Jennifer. I was very saddened to hear about your past and what you were forced to live through. Can you tell us a little about your life growing up? So I grew up with uh, my two parents, my brother, my sister. And in my home, um, I, I had a parent, well, both parents really, where they, I believe they did the best they could, but their best just wasn't good enough. And I grew up really honestly believing that, um, I'm surprised I didn't believe actually that my, my name wasn't Jesus Christ, Jennifer, you're so fucking stupid. Because even from the time that I was little, that is what I heard. You're so effing retarded. You are so stupid. Uh, God damn it, use your brain. And it was all the time, all the time, constantly. If my parents were interacting with me, then that is what um, they would say to me. They didn't take any real interest in me at all. Um, I had teachers, um, especially I had a first grade teacher that really reinforced it, call me stupid, call me um, retarded, would have me go out of the classroom more than I was in the classroom. I did have to repeat first grade. Again, in fourth grade and fifth grade, I had teachers who repeated that my fifth grade teacher told my parents that she wanted me tested because she thought that I was mentally retarded. Um, that was the word that they used back in that time. Now, of course, we we wouldn't say that. Um, and in reality, I, I did need to be tested. I do actually have um, some challenges that are related to a TBI that I had when I was younger. And I really don't think they were, my parents were fully equipped to be able to understand that. And in the 70s, we didn't have 
early intervention the way that we do now. So I didn't have any PT, I didn't have any OT, I didn't have any accommodations in school that they make today, no modifications to my education plan. And if I had the appropriate support, I would have been able to thrive better. But they didn't know. And I I think part of their frustrations really kind of stemmed from they didn't know how to parent a child who had been through that kind of injury. Um, And then, of course, their emotional um, and sometimes even physical abuse, that um, really kind of just deepened and further the, the trauma that I experienced when I was growing up. I am so sorry to hear about what you were forced to endure at such a young age. Because, let's face it, no child should have to go through that. Did your parents try to get you any help? I know times were different then, and you also mentioned your parents were overwhelmed by it all, but did they at least consult with a therapist or other professional to see what could be done to help you? They didn't really see it as anything was wrong. Um, Really, honestly, their belief was that I was lazy, that, you know, I never try. And I could have studied all day long. And I was never going to get that math question or those math things right. A part of my disability is I can't add numbers in my head, even simple numbers. I can't count back change. Math is incredibly difficult for me, not because I'm unintelligent, not because um, with maybe a little patience, I couldn't understand the theory of what's going on. But I there are limitations to what I can do. I don't know left and right very well. Um, And that's, I can get lost going into my own neighborhood, have gotten lost trying to go into my own neighborhood. Even though I've been to your workplace several times, I had to ask you for the address again, um, just because that's part of the, the injury that I have. Directions are really hard for me. So when people give me multiple directions, that's very difficult. Learning new skills, um, it takes a little while. So I work in the medical field um, with some of the things that I do. And in a medical practice, if we have a new electronic medical record system, it's going to take me much longer to learn those steps of how to navigate it. Once I've got it, I've got it, but I have to use it every day or, or I lose those skill sets. One thing you mentioned was a traumatic brain injury. First of all, how did that happen? And Did that have anything to do with it, perhaps? So in the 70s and even the 80s and the 90s, it wasn't, I don't think they stopped making these cribs until the 2000s. At some point, they made a law that said you can't, you can no longer have the drop side cribs where they lock into place. So one side of the crib, you can raise up and down so that you can get to the baby easier. And someone uh, in in my family, my mother always blamed my grandmother. My grandmother always blamed my mom. And I actually suspect it was probably my mother forgot to lock the crib rail up. And also in the 70s, the crib mobiles that what you would hang for entertainment for the child, they were also heavy metal. And so that crib mobile, when the crib railing dropped, so did the crib mobile and it crushed completely my skull. And so if you've ever seen a volleyball where it's deflated and it doesn't have a lot of air, it goes inwards. 
And so my my skull was smushed or crushed. And um, thankfully, because I was only two months old and they were able to go in and I had, there was a surgeon who just happened to be visiting the area. It was during the blizzard of 77. And so my my father had to actually drive me to the hospital in a snowmobile. And that's how he ended up getting me, or that's the story that, that was told. And there just happened to be a surgeon who was visiting, who actually was a top uh, surgeon, brain surgeon that could do this kind of surgery. And that's probably what saved my life. But during that time, the hospital didn't want to release me back to my mother. Uh, they suspected that she was abusive. And my pediatrician actually had thought that she had been abusing me because I had bruises on my body. And uh, I grew up with the story of like, well, you crawled over things and you bumped into things. I was only two months old. So it wasn't until I actually was parenting my own child that I realized, wait a second, I wasn't even crawling. No kid crawls <laughs> at that point. She really did put bruises on me. She really did do some damage to me. And there were stories growing up that neighbors, um, we lived in an apartment early on, called social services. And we had social services calling and they were concerned. Uh, we ended up, after the accident, she ended up switching to a totally different doctor. Uh, she was questioned. Um, eventually, I was released back into their their care. And it was sort of always chalked up as to like, you know, just those social workers and that doctor, they didn't know what they were talking about. But I, I've come to believe that no, they they really did know what they were talking about. And there were times where even I can remember early on bath time where she would dunk me under the water and um, the water would be scalding hot or just different things. And I would be screaming to stop. And even my dad would come uh, like into the room and go like, what is going on? Like she's screaming. And my mom would act very innocent as if nothing bad was going on. Like it was me the whole time. Like she could turn it on and turn it off when, when she wanted to. So do you think that the abuse, which, of course, leaves emotional scars along with the physical wounds that you described as the bruises your mom would cause. Do you think that this abuse paired with your parents calling you stupid and insufficient ended up encouraging you to seek a career in mental health, to spare others the same misfortune, or to at least help them cope? So I didn't know that the way that I was being raised was abusive. And for the most part, it wasn't physical. There were times where it was, but but mostly it was not. And I remember her saying one time, the reason why I don't spank you, because my sister and my brother got spanked quite a bit, um, is because if I spank you, I won't be able to stop. So I think on some level, she had some knowledge and some restraint. And I don't think she liked herself very much. And I look exactly like her. And... I think she was deeply a troubled person, but I didn't know, I didn't know I was abused. Like there was just no, no word for that. I, I did believe that I was bad, um, that I wasn't always maybe as smart as some of the, the other classmates or my, my friends, but I don't think that's what led me necessarily to being a therapist. 
Um, that was something that, that was totally just by chance. I was an education major. And I actually went into a classroom because I wanted to teach sixth grade because that was the year um, for me in 1989 when I was in sixth grade, my brother died. And that was um, 12 is such a weird age. Anyways, that's how old I was. And it's like at 12, you're not an older teen, but you're not quite a child. You're in this like no man's land. And I think it's such an important year as those those middle ages. And so I, I really wanted to be a middle school teacher. Well, I went into, I was taking education classes. So I was enrolled in this, the School of Education through the University of Georgia. I had to go shadow a teacher in my grade that I wanted to teach. And so I entered into a sixth grade classroom. There was a child that was there and people were raising their hands, answering questions, normal classroom type activity. And there was a kid who was slumped on the desk, just not participating, lethargic, may have been sleeping. And I asked about him afterwards and we were in the teacher's lounge and this teacher said to me, there are just some people that are a lost cause. And all the other teachers agreed that you can't help everybody. Let's shift our attention to Parker. I've met him and he is a wonderful kid. As someone who also chose to adopt a child myself, I always wonder, what made you and your husband decide to go for adoption as opposed to having a biological child? And how has this process impacted your family? So I always knew I could not have children, even before I was diagnosed as not being able to have children. There was just something in me that I, I knew. And it was at about 12 that I had figured out, oh, I, I'm never going to have a, a baby. Uh, my brother had died. And it was um, just another trauma. And it was, uh, I was there when it had happened. Um, he had accidentally gotten caught up in a, and he was in his room playing and he had tied a, a rope around his neck and he was swinging because he had a walk-in closet. He was trying to swing from up high, but long story short, he, he ended up where he hung himself by accident and he was seven. And um, it was just my dad and I at home at the time. Um, during a snowstorm in Buffalo in Western New York. So it was very hard to even get ambulances and first responders out there. Um, but everyone who did come, that was it was fine. I mean, they were wonderful. But um, the the whole sequence of events was just very traumatizing. And, you know, having to and seeing um, CPR done on a seven-year-old and um, – it it was it was it was a very hard time um but people kept telling me i guess as a way of comfort cuz people tell you really interesting things when when you're grieving as a way of trying to be kind but they would say well your brother is going to live on through your children and so i thought okay well i can have them back again so was adoption in some shape or form also a way for you to cope with your brother's death? I mean, obviously, Parker is not meant to replace your brother, right? 
But I could imagine that having him in your life now eases the pain of losing your brother, even if ever so slightly. Now, would adoption have been an option for you and Kurt, even if you could have had your own children? So at the same time, like right after my brother died, um, I had really like bad cramping and um, I was laying on the floor because I have endometriosis. It was later confirmed that that I do. And so there's scar tissue and inside my reproductive organs. And um, but there was a point where um, I because I, I wouldn't just get cramps. I, I would throw up. I would vomit. I couldn't walk. I mean, it was really like I had a lot of pain. And there was one night I was like on the kitchen floor because it was really cold. <laughs> um, I was just laying there in, in pain. And I realized that I will never have children and that I will never have my brother back again. And so it was odd because people always say like you grieve your infertility. That was never the case for me. I never, I never cared about that part. What happened was I cared about when I was younger, like having my brother back in some way. And so that was just all caught up in that grief process. And I always knew from that moment on, if I wanted to have children, if I wanted to expand my family, that adoption was the only way. So I never, ever even thought about biological children. Like it, that, that wasn't even something that ever occurred to me. So adoption was the only way to expand our family. And I met my husband when we were in high school and um, we we were practically married from the time that we met. Like we never acted any different. Um, one of our friends who was older, they were in their forties when we were in our twenties and they were like, you're the youngest 20 year or you're the oldest 20 year olds that, that we know we were already acting like we were 40 when we were in our twenties. And um, we talked early on about kids and adoption. And so that was always the plan. There was never any other option. So that was just how it was going to how it was going to be if we were going to expand our family then this is how we're going to do it one thing i always wonder about with other adoptive parents because it's something that i had to face with my own son is the question of how i feel regarding my son contacting or keeping in touch with his biological family now i'm very open with my son cody and he actually does stay in contact with what is left of his biological family because I think it's important for us to be completely honest and not ignore the fact that there were obviously people in his life before I, quote-unquote, happened. But I get where that may not always be the right decision, depending on age and whatever family history an adopted child has. So does Parker have any contact to his biological family? What are your views on that? So Parker has uh, a couple of different very serious medical conditions, one of them being bipolar. And um, that is something that we, we've we always managed. It's not, it's it's like any other illness, whether it's diabetes or epilepsy. Um, we, we maintain what we need to, to do so that he can be healthy. Um, so that's, we consider that more, you know, not necessarily an issue, but it's a it's a medical um, 
a medical condition that we we manage. And as far as his uh, family, uh, we are in contact with them. And we had what's called an open adoption. So his um, other mother, and I call her his other mother. So like at, at home, I might say your mom called. And he obviously knows that I'm not talking about me. I mean, I mean, his other mother um, called him. So we're we're very open about that. I, I wish that we live closer um, so that we could be in contact. And I had always told him, because for a while, we we did not have a lot of contact. I mean, she knew how to reach us. And it was not for me to force her to reach out because she needed to do what she needed to do. And she was raising other children. And so um, when she was ready, she did actually reach back out to us again. But I had always told um, Parker that when he was 13 that I would find her. Um, and I didn't have to find her. I just needed to contact her again. Um, and she beat me to it. <laughs> so she called me. And his sister was moving uh, to our area, actually, well, to our state. And so we have um, spent some time with his sister, not a whole lot of time, because actually at that moment, um, we had, he had been in reunion with his sister. And it was December of 2019. And she spent Christmas with us. We didn't know what was coming. And so she had moved here. And we had every intention of traveling back and forth to Charleston, going to see her all the time. I'm like, heck yeah, I can drop him off. And then my husband and I can go do our thing and they can spend their week together and we're great. Uh, but it didn't happen that way, unfortunately, because, of course, there was this global pandemic. Yeah, the pandemic was most certainly a difficult time for everyone. But maybe for your family, a little bit more so than for many others, because not only did you have to deal with the threat of COVID, but in the midst of all that, your husband, Kurt, got sick. And I believe you got Kurt's cancer diagnosis right in the middle of the pandemic, right? How did you manage to muster the strength to not only overcome the pandemic, but for Kurt to even be cured from his cancer right in the middle of all this? So when there was, I don't even think it was called a pandemic at that point, I used to work for someone who's relatively high up in the CDC. And I, I nannied for his three children. And he, I don't know, I wouldn't call it germophobic necessarily. Um, maybe, maybe. Uh, but he, his specialty area was inoculations, vaccinations, that type of thing. And he was actually going back to school for his doctorate and doing this campaign to try and get people to vaccinate. And so he was showing me his posters and I was his target audience, his age, the the age group of like, this is like, you want your moms who are going through the office to read those posters and to understand like vaccination is a good thing. And so um, he he had me kind of just view some of those things, like, do you understand this? Do you understand what it's saying? And he said, you know, one day it could be bad. And, you know, here's all the signs of when it could get 
really sticky. It's like when you have maybe necessarily, um, when you have maybe an unstable head of government, when you have people um, for various different reasons who don't vaccinate, when you have immigrants who are afraid to get vaccination and to go seek care. It's like this perfect storm of things happening. And he goes, and that's when it can just, everything can come back again. And when it's ripe for a pandemic and I, and that was over 20 something years ago. And I was looking at like what was happening and I was going, Oh no, Oh no. And I, every part of me knew this is going to be bad. So even before anybody had any kind of clue, I was already at Target and I was like loading the cart up with toilet paper. And I only did a couple of those runs. I'm sorry. I didn't, I'm not responsible for the toilet paper crisis. I promise you. Um, and, but I did make sure like we had hand sanitizer, like, and I was looking at like non-perishable foods. Cause I didn't, nobody really knew in those, those early days. Um, we, my husband, he's a type one diabetic and all the reports coming from Europe at that time, it was really bad. And particularly what struck me was in Italy, those videos and and their pleas. And, uh, I also have, uh, a friend here, um, and Rachel had shared that her, uh, friend that's an epidemiologist was like, it's bad, it's bad. <laughs> and I consulted with her and her husband, who's also a physician, who ended up being my husband's oncologist later on during this process, and my our primary care provider. And they said, yes, if we we ran down the scenario, we talked to the epidemiologist, um, our, our friend who's the doctor, well, both of our friends who are the doctor said that we don't know much about this virus, but what we do know is that he would be at high risk at this time, that if he got it, he could die. That's certainly not what you want to hear, especially when everyone's already freaking out and it's already getting a little crazy and um, people are panicking and don't know what's going to happen with their families. But at that point, he didn't have his cancer diagnosis yet, correct? Correct. Um, We had no idea at, at that moment. And I just went into planning mode because that's what I do. Um, As a social worker and a psychotherapist, I always have a treatment plan. So if I have a plan, I'm a rule follower. Um, And you had asked earlier, like, what kind of was the outcome of all of that trauma earlier? Well, it's I'm a rule follower because if I behave myself and I follow the rules, I might not get into as much trouble. And that's kind of faulty thinking, really. Um, But that's... That's how I survived, was trying to be as good as I could possibly be so that no one would pay attention to me and that I could just, like, skate through on things. Um, so I created a plan, and I I was very militant about this plan, about hand-washing and wiping down everything. And um, and so for about a year, a year, we did this. And... Finally, the vaccines came through and we're like, thank God, we can then go about and live our lives. This is great. Uh, I got my vaccine. Uh, Parker wasn't eligible yet. Kurt got his vaccine. Kurt reacted very badly to the vaccines, very badly, the first and the, the second. Um, he, it, it was as if he had the flu and he wasn't 
really recovering the way that you would expect. Because some people really did feel genuinely with the the first few shots, like, you know, that they had a massive headache or they had a fever and chills or whatever. But this was more than that. He just didn't recover. And throughout the pandemic, he at first was kind of grouchy and irritable. And that's just not his nature, like at all. That is not who he is. He's the most easygoing person that I, I know. And he has the patience of a saint. But he was starting to lose patience. He was getting irritable and grouchy. He was yelling at the dog in, in a way that's just unreasonable. And I thought, if we are going to be cooped up with you for this entire time, like you've got to make some changes. Um, and one of them was I immediately had him go to our primary care doctor and she put him on Lexapro. And I thought, well, it makes sense because he's an introvert and he's around my son and myself 24 seven because I homeschooled and he has no escape. So of course we're driving him nuts. That's what I figured that that was that we were driving him crazy and that he needed something. And I'm like, mm, that'll take the edge off a little bit. And it worked like he, he was actually, his mood was, was better. And he even started to like the dog, which was a miracle. Um, but he was losing energy he was getting fatigued. We would, during the pandemic, we would take the dog for a walk several times a day. And we have a couple of slight hills in our neighborhood. And I was tackling them, no problem, of course, but he could not. And and he was saying, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. I know there's something really wrong with me. And I guess we thought maybe it could have been the vaccine, like from, and so he ended up, he got a referral to, um, a cardiologist, because I guess there's uh, myocarditis and some other things that were happening. And I thought, of course, the diabetic is going to have issues with the vaccine. Uh, but it, it, he got a clear bill of health from that. But every time he would go back to our primary care doctor, and it was quite a bit, his iron level was getting lower and lower and lower. So at first, we changed our diet, and we were putting in uh, more greens and more other foods that had iron and that didn't really work. And so they were like, okay, well, we'll do iron pills. So there was a prescription for that. And still his iron was falling drastically. And finally, when he saw not our primary care, but actually um, the nurse practitioner in that office, she made a referral to hematology and oncology. And the way we found out was because now there's a law that you have access to your medical charts. So it wasn't like some doctor told us that we were going to have this referral. Um, and they would have called us, but he was checking his charts and he was checking his labs. And he looked in there and he's like, oh, they referred me to hematology and oncology. So he basically found out about suspected cancer through an app without any doctor trying to like talk him through it kind of like hey don't be concerned yet you know this is just for us to do a routine check how did he handle that i mean i picture myself being at home i mean I, i'm already a bit of a hypochondriac anyway but i would be freaking out so he wasn't freaking out because of that hematology part right so um it, hematologists deal with blood um, issues and he had low iron. So it could be that 
the referral for our local hospital system was months away. And I was like, oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Because he had said to me earlier, there's something really wrong with me. And I knew as soon as I saw it, there was no doubt in my mind what that was. I didn't know what type. I just knew this is happening. And it just so happens that one of our friends is one of the top-rated oncologists in South Carolina, probably um, even broader than that. But he's he's just amazing, and he's here in the in the upstate. And so I called his wife immediately, and I said, Rachel, um, I think we need key. I explained really briefly. It was like a two minute conversation, and she goes, Call him. And he was already in my cell phone. Um, and so I called him and he goes, I'll see him tomorrow at eight o'clock in the morning. So you go to the appointment, still somewhat optimistic. The doctor runs some tests, probably orders a lab, still all pretty routine, I would assume. How long from that moment until you found out that the potential cancer is in fact cancer? So there was only a limited amount of things that could be. It could be an upper GI bleed, maybe a lower GI bleed. I think they really suspected upper GI bleed. It could be the way that he processed. Um, I can't remember like a certain vitamin or, or whatever, like maybe he's not processing something correctly or it was cancer. And uh, his his oncologist, he was very clear with us that we don't panic until we have something to to worry about, of course. And given you know his age, like the demographic that he was in, there was no reason to start being anxious yet. Of course I was because I already was like, nope, this is this is it. It took a while to get into the GI doctor and by a while, I mean, um, it, it seemed like forever, but it really wasn't. We just had to wait for an opening and it was a lot sooner than what we would have had the original for referral to to the other um, hospital system. So we get into the GI doctor and they they schedule an endoscopy and they rushed it because his iron just kept dropping. So they actually made it so that he can get in quicker. And I take him to the endoscopy um, or no col colonoscopy, not endoscopy. I'm sorry, colonoscopy. And they don't get very far and they don't get very far because there is a massive blockage. It almost was a hundred percent of a block. And so I go back into the waiting or into the recovery room where he's at and the surgeon comes out and the look on the surgeon's face and my husband's not with it. Um, he must've repeated a couple of times and he goes, Oh, you're here. When did you get here? And then he would drop his head down. He goes, Oh, you're here. When did you get here? And I, I asked the nurse, how many times he's going to say that? Um, so he, he was sort of just sort of numb and, and the effects of, you know, the anesthesia and everything were wearing off. And the doctor comes out and he talks to us both. And he, he said, in my experience, the way that it looked, there is no doubt that it is cancer. And he tried to soften it by saying he has seen cancer before and like this where there's a mass and that it wasn't 
late stages, but I knew he was trying to soften it. And I almost passed out. And the nurse was like, oh, you know, and he's like, no, she gets it. And I knew that he knew I knew (laughs) that this was really bad. So that's when the whole ordeal with different doctors, different specialists, different experts, different opinions, probably a million uh, YouTube suggested home remedies or um, potential Googled miracle cures began. Now, what was that journey like? And how did he eventually end up beating this? Everything had to go really quickly. And and I also knew that's why it was bad, because even when you get a cancer diagnosis, sometimes it's not like until like weeks or even a month later that you end up seeing like who you need to go to. This was like the very next day he was scheduled to go get scans and then even more scans the day after that. And then the day after that, we met with the surgeon and they were getting all the pathology and everything. And it, it after all of that, and it went by really quickly, um, it was stage three. And so it was not early stages. So he goes and he gets, uh, he had a first, they have to remove, it was a, it's actually one of the most common um, colon cancers that you get. It was like sigmoid um, where it was located in the, in the, um, in the tract. And so he had to have that reconstructed and taken out. And our surgeon was amazing truly amazing he was supposed to come out of it with a a a bag um a colostomy bag and she made it possible so that he didn't in fact that was the first thing when he woke up he's like do i have a bag (laughs) like he was checking and and it wouldn't have been the worst thing but it, it just would have been one more thing that we we had to do and so she was brilliant and they looked it looked like they cleared all of it out so he began chemotherapy and they do these DNA signature tests in your blood, and it can detect whether or not there's cancer. And it's up to like an 80% certainty. So every time you take it, um, it's not 100%, but it becomes like that certainty level becomes better and better statistically. And he was doing really well. Well, um, in the meantime, because we really did not think that things were going to go well, he wanted to plan one last vacation. So we, and and I was like, great, anywhere you want to go. And he's like, we're going to Disney World. <laughs> so we planned this trip for Disney. And it actually looked like he was getting better. So we were like, this is amazing. But then we get a phone call. And I get the phone call because for some reason they couldn't reach him. And I was at a doctor's appointment with my son. And I was sitting in there and I was like, oh, I'm so glad you called because we want to know when we can take the port out because he has a port in his chest. And um, she's like really quiet. And then I know, oh, damn, it's back. And she didn't even have to tell me. And she's just like, we need him to come back in right away. And sure enough. And usually what happens is, is there, there's more time between when it comes back because the reoccurrence is actually really, really high. In, in colon cancer, it's, it's, it's not a good one to, I mean, no cancer is good, but that's, it, it's one of the nasty ones. And um, so usually people just have many more months and even a year before it comes back and reoccurrence in the first three years is, is really typical, but it hadn't even been a few months 
and it was back. And the location that it was was very, very difficult of where that was. It was right next to his hip bone. And um, once it, it metastasizes into the bone, there is no coming back from that. Um, and so no one really wanted to go and get it and biopsy it because it was just at a very difficult location. And his his surgeon that had done the, the other surgery was like, I can do it. <laughs> Um, after a lot of people had just said, no, thank you, and passed up on it. And, and she did do it. And, and um, she did it, again, brilliantly. Everything went, went well, but, of course, it was cancer. And so then he was in basically, even within, like, you know, there's stages one, two, three, and four, but even there's stages within stages. And so at that point, it hadn't quite metastasized, but it was getting ready to. And so then we had to go and, and do something much more aggressive but I realized he's not going to live through this. Like, he's just not. The odds are not in his favor. And I used to work in hospice. And I did home health. And I did palliative care. And I knew what this was going to look like. And so um, we were going to fight it as aggressively as we could for as long as we could until it impacted his quality of life. And then we were just going to stop. The treatment. And we were always positive because there is always hope. And I knew that if anyone could get a cure and give us a miracle, it was going to be Ki Chung. <laughs> like I knew that, that that could be possible. And so unbeknownst to us, Ki was presenting him as an option and meeting with other um, important people. And there is a surgery that is not done too often. For those of you who don't know, can you give a little more background information about Key and also how you stumbled across that as a solution in a time that you just described as basically past the final straw? So Key Chung, Dr. Key Chung, um, is an oncologist uh, here in the upstate, and one of his specialties is colon cancer. I mean, he has several several specialties. Um, and there was a surgery that he was aware of that they actually do with testicular cancer. And even then you don't always get the surgery. It's very difficult to perform. You have to have what we then later knew was surgeons of excellence. And it turns out we don't have that very many in the country, but he knew of one who just happened to move here and is part of his hospital system, um, who came from New York. And he had done quite a few of these. And it is removing every lymph node from the kidney on down so that you don't have any place for this to travel. And there's very few hospitals that do this. So now we do this in Greenville, apparently, with this doctor. Um, we do that in, there's some hospitals in New York. I mean, it's it's there's just a smattering of just this small it's it's a very small segment of people that that do this and then japan and those are the only other places that do do this apparently so it it's complicated because like your lymph nodes are wrapped into like veins and arteries and i mean it's just a very tedious thing to do and you can't perforate any organs as you're trying to remove this. So it's a, a, a fairly long surgery as well. And uh, it went 
really well. And so when you wake up, the moment you wake up, you are cancer free. So he goes in as stage three cancer and he wakes up and he's cancer free. Now, I assume having no more of those lymph nodes does have some effect on his life right now, though. Um, how does it impact him? Does he have to take medication for the rest of his life? Or what does he now need to do that they remove those lymph nodes? So <laughs> there was a complication that only happens to a very small percent. It's like 5% or less. And of course, <laughs> it happened to him. And it is that if you have too much fat, and I'm not sure how this all works, to be honest, um, but somehow it it gets processed in a weird way. And so he he couldn't process it in his stomach. Like literally he looked like he was nine months pregnant. And it didn't happen right away because the way that you wake up, you are given no fat and then they graduate you to like uh, 10, uh, 10 grams of fat. And then they said, do 20 grams of fat when we went home and do that for a couple of weeks until um, you go back to see the surgeon and he clears you. Well, most people somewhere along the way start adding, and this just happens naturally, they add more and more fat. So by the time that you go to your doctor, you're pretty much on back to your regular diet. And that's not what happened. In fact, he never even reached 20 grams of fat because I was counting the fat grams that he would have. And so he was way under that. So he goes to the doctor and I was like, make sure, make sure you tell them that you are not eating up to what they think. And the doctor was like, yeah, you can go back and resume your normal um, dietary habits. So what does he do? My husband goes out and he grabs himself fast food because he's like, woohoo. And he is just chowing down on the things that he couldn't have before. And I'm like, no, I was horrified. And I'm I, this is not okay. And he's like, you know, but I feel okay. And my doctor cleared me. And I'm like, well, the two of you are not being very smart in this. And in and, and all fairness, the other doctor didn't realize that he was never really up to eating 20 grams of fat a day. And sure enough, that leak happened and he started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But first it was like he felt sluggish and really tired. And what happens is, is that fluid fills up and it starts to crush your organs. So to the point where like when he finally went to the ER um, and, and we weren't even sure that this was it. Like we thought, oh, he must have a blockage, like he's constipated or something. Um, and it turns out it was the leakage. So I got to say, like, I told you so. Um, and it, it's not very pleasant. Like they take this huge needle and you hear it pop and they suck all the fluid. I like, it's just, it's, it's not a good process. One thing I wonder the entire time, I mean, We've talked about Kurt. We've talked about Parker. We're going to talk a little bit um, about your own health struggles. How do you keep this sparkly, positive, we're going to get through this attitude when so many of us, including probably a lot of people listening right now, would be absolutely devastated, would probably put their head in the sand, not want to talk to anyone, not want to see anyone. Where do you find your strength through all of this? So I knew if there was going to be a miracle that Dr. Chung was the one who was going to deliver that. 
And we never did any research ever. So part of that positivity was we never looked at the internet. We never looked at anything anyone sent us, like at all, at all. It was just like, no, don't want it. Don't need to see it. Because his doctor knew what he, and and I, I knew he knew what he was doing. He is one of the best. And his doctor had said, like, you let me worry and you guys continue on. And even though I knew it was bad because I had worked in hospice, I never told my husband (laughs) that it was bad. So he kind of just always believed he was going to get better. Yes, and I get that. And you talk a lot about we, we went through this, but it seems to me like this entire time, you are kind of the strong captain of the ship and you keep the family together, you keep everyone sane. There have had to be moments where you were just sad, shocked, scared, afraid for Kurt to die, afraid for your family to crumble, for you having to do even more on your own than you already had through that extreme health situation. Where did you find your strength? Um, Partly you. So you know that we have a friend network, right? And we have book club, which is sacred to me. I I try not to miss it um, because it's part discussing the book, part gossiping about movies or things going on in the world or whatever is going on. Like we just have a goofy time. Um, And uh, I have some friends from our homeschooling co-op And um, there was another support group that was really instrumental, and it was through um, what's called the Juvenile Bipolar Research Research Foundation. And they did a support group at the time, and we met about three times a week. And I attended every single one of those support meetings every single night. Like, it was sacred time. And it was through the support of other people, and everyone was so generous. Like, I'm not even kidding you. The kindness that other people were showing, I was used to as the social worker, um, and even not even as a social worker, just like a citizen in our community. Like if my neighbor was dying, and in fact, my neighbor was dying, one of them, um, I went over and held their hand and gave the family relief. And I um, helped them to find the hospice that came in and finally took care of their their loved one. If somebody's house had caught on fire, and even if I didn't know them, I'm like, okay, let's organize um, everything. We'll drop it off at my house, and then their friend can come pick it up. And so I, I organized a lot of different different things. So I wasn't used to being on the other end of that. And it felt a little odd. Um, but a local um, universalist Unitarian church that sometimes we attended their services, um, I reached out to them and they did a meal train and then friends, because this was again during the pandemic, would drop off um, hard to get items <laughs> at our doorstep. There was a Gatorade shortage at one point and my husband actually needed Gatorade as part of like Um, some of the things that he had to do for preps and things like that. And we're like, and at a certain point, that was the only thing he could drink and keep down. And so people would drop off Gatorade and ginger ale and um, meals and um, people just do things. And at one point, and I swear this is another miracle, like we just had different miracles, whether people believe in them or not. But I, I think the miracle is the kindness of other people. 
And I belong to this Patreon group, which I normally don't subscribe like to pay money for these things, but it was a, a podcaster that I really love. And um, her whole team is fabulous. And so it was World W, uh, it was Walt Disney World Prep to Go. So WDW Prep to Go. And um, I, I, once you're a member of the Patreon group, you get into their private Facebook page. And so, of course, I was on it. And that was my way of coping, right? Because I would escape through these things. Like I would watch YouTube videos about the perfect Disney trip. And we would plan everything that we were going to eat and all the rides that we were going to do. And then I had my support group. And then, of course, our friend network that we had. So everyone was very uplifting. Um, We had so much love and so much support from from so many people. Um, But this this group of private individuals on the Facebook page that is they're the Patreon members. When I had said that this was going to be our last vacation as a family and that this is what we were planning, um, it was sort of like a make a wish for an adult. And I did not know this, but they had shut me off out of the conversation. They had a private one where they excluded me and they were like, we're going to send them to Disney world. Like, extra fabulous and so they had raised like close to six thousand dollars to add on to our trip and what they did not know was that things had gotten so bad that we were actually going to have to cancel our trip and i was like well i don't think we can afford to and and it just so happened to be that that was close to the amount of the actual trip (laughs) and so and then i wasn't even sure he could go on it And so I was like, you know, I can't accept this. And she's like, even if it's just you and your son, you're going to go to Disney. Like, this is, you deserve that. The kindness of other people is something that can truly change your life. And in, in your case, it did more than once, actually. Because the trip to Disney wasn't the only thing that was a miracle, as you say, or a sign of the kindness of random strangers. What else happened? So two of our mutual friends, um, Nina and Wendy, and actually Nina um, doesn't really know me as well as as Wendy and you do, um, but she's still part of our, our friend group. And Nina had heard that we were in need of a new air conditioning unit. And originally, she's going to try and see if there was a possibility that I could get a significant discount because she works for a company that does these. And our air conditioning unit was over 25 years old, and it was basically on hospice and life support itself. And my husband has, of course, all of his medical needs. So we need power and we need air conditioning and we need heat. And my son actually has um, a disorder called um, thermoregulatory fear of harm, where he can overheat very easily and he needs um, things to be conditioned and cooled and certain at a specific temperature. And it would have cost us like over $10,000 to have this um, done correctly. And with all the medical stuff, I mean, it just, it was like no way. Um, So we're just hoping it can hang on. And it, it was just a matter of time. And so Nina learns through this newsletter that there is a company, Lennox, that partners with 
with local companies in different states to give them a top of the line new HVAC system. So Nina then tells Wendy, our, our friend, Wendy does her magic and she, I still have no idea what she wrote, does her magic and writes this up. I get a phone call from Brothers Heating and Air, Plumbing, Heating and Air. Um, they're amazing. They're in Greer. So if anyone is local, please use them. And uh, they tell me that I'm a finalist, but they need to come out to make sure that our, our house can um, is suitable and appropriate for their, their stuff. And they had narrowed it down to like two or three people. So they come out to the home and I thought, well, there's a lot of deserving people and there's no reason to think that we deserve it because it's not even a matter about deserve. Um, and so I, I didn't pin our hopes on this too much, but sure, if you want to come out, that's great. And so they did. And um, one of the qualifications for this was you had to be someone who was in need for this and that there was some kind of burden or something that was happening or challenge in your life. But the third part of that was it had to go to a community member who also gave back to their community in some way. And so um, my husband was always a volunteer um, with all the sports leagues through the YMCA. And um, I've done a ton of volunteer work and substance use in our community. That was for my job and um, domestic violence and all, all kinds of things. And they were like, well... You, you certainly qualify for that. But before they even left, um, they didn't even make it outside the door. And they said, we're going to do this for you. And not only did they give us a new HVAC system, they took down trees. They painted things in our house. They they rewired some things. Um, they put in like a new ceiling fan um, in our bathroom. They did all of, the, I mean, I can't even tell you how much they did. They did so many things, so many things. They brought in a, a meal that, actually a couple meals that lasted several days um, and best chicken pot pie I ever had. Uh, it was it was just, that was, you know, the other, another miracle in itself of kindness of, of other people. That is so beautiful. You know, when you turn on the TV and you follow the news, life can seem rather depressing sometimes because gloom and doom appear to rule the world we live in. But when you look closer and you hear stories about people putting community first, it's, it's really inspiring and genuinely beautiful. I wish more people stopped spending money on the Kardashians' latest shapewear beauty product or adoring billionaires trying to rule the world and instead saw that there's so much good we can do little by little in our own backyard, in our own local communities. Why not help a regular person instead of making a corporation or a celebrity richer and more famous? This is really wonderful and amazing. So thank you, Jennifer, for sharing that with us. Now, We've spoken about Kurt's health struggles and Parker's bipolar disorder, but you also had your very own problems to address. Can you tell us a little bit about that? For you as the glue that seems to hold it all together, that must have been particularly hard. So before a trip to Disney World, I got really sick and it happened 
very quickly. I was in a little pain. I went to urgent care because it was unusual for me and I knew something was going on. And when I got there, I was smiling and that's, I, I have a high pain tolerance, but that's, I don't know. I, I guess that's just how I present anyways. Like even if I'm hurting or whatever, I'm still smiling. And because I was talking normally and because I was smiling, I don't think they realized how much pain I actually was in. And I was trying to avoid the hospital because COVID was ramping up like it's second wave um, or third wave. I have no idea which wave we were on, honestly. But um, I, I wanted to avoid the ER if at all possible. And they ran a COVID test, they ran a flu test, and and I knew it wasn't either one of those. And they were like, well, there's nothing we can do for you, and we don't get pain medication, which is not what I was looking for. I go back home, and the pain just is, like, overwhelming. But I, I don't know what it is, and I can't go back to urgent care, and maybe I can go see my physician, I don't know, in the morning, but I don't even make it to the morning. It's like 2.30 in, in the morning. And um, I wake up and it felt like my whole entire stomach was on fire. I can't even describe the pain. Like, it's, it's undescribable. I thought my appendix had burst. And so my husband, who is now on aggressive chemo, comes into the room and he can't, he has neuropathy in his legs and his feet now. And um, he was very weak. And he said, okay, I'll drive you to the hospital. And I'm like, you're not allowed to drive. What are you going to do? Like roll me to the, the, drive me to the hospital door and just roll me out. Like I can't even walk. I'm like, dude, how is this going to, this isn't even going to work. And he's like, what, what do we do? I'm like, I guess we have to call for an ambulance. So we call 911 and there's an ambulance that came and they were fabulous. It was a um, EMT and a paramedic. So if in our county, and I didn't know this, anytime that you call 911 and, and one of them arrives, you will always have a paramedic and an EMT and they were fabulous. And I um, said, I think it's appendicitis. And she's like, well, it could be, or it could be that you have a cyst and it, and it burst. And she's like, but it is consistent with appendicitis. Well, it turns out I had a cyst and it burst. <laughs> so a cyst pops, of course, yeah. because why wouldn't it? But that's not the end of that story. So I can't do, uh, I don't do anesthesia well. I was told that when I had a laparoscopy that confirmed when I was younger that I had endometriosis, which is the reason why I can't have children. And... Um, I go in and I'm like, I can't, I can't have a surgery. I can't have a surgery. So they said, well, we'll try and do antibiotics. And I had IV antibiotics and oral antibiotics. And I was in the hospital for three days and they tried and they were drawing blood cultures. And at a certain point they came in and they said, you have to go to surgery right now. And I was like, no, no, we need to wait. I, I would try. And they're like, no, you're going septic. We have to go in right now. And I said, I can't get surgery unless it's an emergency. And they're like, you're not understanding. It is an emergency. So I go in and I, I tell the anesthesiologist, like, hey, I don't take well to anesthesia. My lungs fill up with fluid. My blood pressure drops and it goes really yo-yo. Um, I'm going to have a lot of problems. And um, I think I really need the ICU or something afterwards. And he's like, well, how long ago was that? And I was like, oh, it was in 2000. And, and he said, well technology has advanced since then. And I was thinking as I was like literally going to sleep <laughs> and being wheeled in, I was like, yes, but my lungs haven't changed. 
Um, and, and I know he said, don't worry, we have ways to monitor that during surgery. So I wake up, I'm in recovery, I go back to the room, and they're like, oh, you should feel great. And I had a different kind of pain, and it was in my chest. And they thought I was having panic attacks. And it was like over a period of time, it wasn't like right away, um, but I wasn't getting better. And at one point, it was so bad, and they start giving me fluid through through IV because I was dehydrated. Well, I feel the fluid, like I feel that I could taste the saline solution in my mouth and my nose. It was actually leaking out of where the IV was. I was saturated. And I said, and I was getting really, really sick and I could feel it. And I said, um, something's wrong. Something's really, really wrong. And and so they took it as that I was having a panic attack. And I said, no, I'm not having a panic attack. I'm a psychotherapist. A panic attack only lasts between 20 and 30 minutes. This has been going on for like 48 hours. Like this is not, this is not a panic attack. Um, but that was their belief system. And eventually uh, I, I wasn't getting any better, but they thought, well, maybe I just need to recover at home. So I go home and I wasn't getting any better. In fact, I could not lay flat. What I didn't realize is that every time I was laying flat, I was drowning basically because there was so much fluid in my lungs, I could not breathe. And I could feel my cognition slowing down because I, I actually am a really like fat, my, I, I, I think very, very quickly. Um, and I could feel that things were like slowing and I could feel that I was becoming a little bit more not together. And so we kept calling for like two nights, the nurse's line. And the first night it was like, well, follow the doctor's orders, follow up with your primary care. And I'm like, well, there's something wrong. And then the second night, by that time, I couldn't even sit up. It was crushing. Like literally, I felt like my chest was in a vice. So at 2.30 in the morning, and again, the kindness of, of neighbors and friends, I called a friend because my husband, I, I didn't want another ambulance bill. And I, and I also didn't want to see the same people like, oh, hi, you're back again? Like just the embarrassment of like, it's the same paramedic and the same EMT. And I was like, nope, nope, not doing that again. I love Brittany and I love the other one. They were really great, but um, nope, sorry, I can't do that again. So we called my friend, Nicole, who said, yep, absolutely. So like in the dead, of, like in the right in the morning, she gets dressed, she comes over, she takes me back to the same hospital that she just picked me up from two days ago to bring me home. And we go to the ER, we go to triage. Triage was completely unimpressed by me. And they tell me, go have a seat in a full waiting room where I know I'm going to be waiting for hours. And I looked at Nicole, at Nicole and I was completely defeated by that point. And I said, I don't think I'm being um, hyperbolic when I tell you I think I'm circling the drain. What I didn't know is that that triage nurse took my oxygen level, right? And the pulse ox was less than 80%. Like you, if you're at 90%, you're supposed to go. I was like at 78, 79. And she's like, go have a seat. I didn't know that at the time. It was like, I found that out later. I was panicking. Like, I, I do not feel like I'm going to make it through for a couple of other, another hours. I can't, I can't do this. My, my chest is just, it's hurting. I cannot breathe for whatever reason. And so, um, and I didn't know about the fluid in the lungs. I had no idea what was happening. 
And so um, I called back the nurse's line to basically tell on triage. And so they called someone and, and they got me back and I go and they do a CT immediately and they realize that my lungs are um, impaired and that I have fluid in my lungs. And so they start doing um, continuous Lasix. And so they're getting fluid draining off my body. Well, if you take continuous Lasix, it can cause kidney damage. I think by now we've learned that if there is an awful outcome that only affects 0.00078% of the population, that that is the outcome that you will have. So kidney failure much? Well, I didn't know right away because I came home and I was feeling better and the fluid was off and I still had some fluid there, but I had to absorb it. And uh, went to my primary care doctor who um, we had agreed, even though I had Lasix to take home with me. And it's like, it wasn't even like 24 hours. Like I had the Lasix. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I just don't need it. I don't know why. There's something about it. Like I just said, you know what? I'm good. I don't, I don't think I need that. And she agreed. Um, and so it wasn't, so we went to Disney. Everything was great. Had fun time. Did that AC, all that, all that stuff came together. Um, but December rolls around and that's when I have like my yearly physical with my primary care doctor and she does a test for kidney functioning and my kidneys function at like maybe like around an 80 or 90 year old adult. <laughs> um, so not good. So it's not quite failure, but it's like four points from entering into kidney failure. Is it something that you can address now on a daily basis? Is there a medication that helps you keep it in check? Are you eventually going to need dialysis, kidney transplant? Like what's in the cards for you with this diagnosis? So like every doctor, right? She's like, don't panic until there's something to panic about. And sometimes it can be diet and other things. And so I immediately switch to a DASH diet where it's like extremely low fat, no sodium um, or low sodium. So I change everything. I, I switch to I'm only drinking water. <laughs> Um, and it, it, as soon as I heard it, I was like, no, no. But I also know like, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen to me. Like, I just knew, I just knew. And no one said it was linked to the surgery, but I know that it was, and I know it was linked to the, the LASIK. So the next step for me is I got an appointment and I had a friend who, again, the kindness and generosity of, you know, other people. Um, I have a, a good friend who he knew someone who knew someone who apparently is a really great nephrologist. And so that's the next step is I want to figure out like, am I right? Did the damage really come from that? Is it reversible? Um, it, Cause I, there's a part of me that knows that, well, probably not, um, but maybe. And how can I keep it going as like, how can I be as healthy as I possibly can to keep it going for as long as I possibly can um, so it's sort of like, what are the next steps that I need to do? Um, because once you enter into kidney failure, um, and that's a whole process in and of itself, like you just don't go from kidney failure, like the beginning to, to that, but it's just navigating that whole process. Of course, we hope that there is going to be a positive outcome. Now, one last thing I want to talk about is something that you are very passionate about, and that is your work for a particular nonprofit. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about that and also about how people might be able to support your work and what exactly your nonprofit might offer for the people out there? Absolutely. Uh, the support group through JBRF, um, I received a call and uh, I thought, well, that's really odd <laughs> from uh, the director there. And she said, call me when you get back from Disney World. I, I couldn't think about, well, what the heck could this be? Like, what is happening? And so I got back, I called her and she said that um, she was uh, going to uh, no longer be part of JBRF. And she explained that they were going to be focusing. Sorry to interrupt you. Just for people who don't know what JBRF is, can you explain that a little bit? So JBRF is the Juvenile Bipolar Research Foundation, and they do research for um, basically pediatric onset of, of bipolar and do lots of studies and lots of research and helps families. And they had a support group. And that was the support group that I was attending several several nights a week. And when I got back, um, our the director there was like, well, they decided to scale back considerably and only focus on the research. But the support groups had been my lifeline and they were my rock. And I was like, no. And she's like, but this is good news. And I thought, there is no way that this is good news. Like you are our support network, you you are our lifeline. And she said, because I'm starting a new nonprofit and I can't, I don't want to do this without you. And she said, you're brilliant. And remember, like, I was always told how stupid I was and, and all that stuff. So it was, it was just weird and overwhelming to hear someone say that I was brilliant and that I was a brilliant diagnostician and that I understand bipolar inside and out. And um, I mean, she had me at brilliant <laughs> and she wanted me to um, kind of be the lead for the the clinical team when we, when we grow and um, she had these visions. And so I, I was like, okay, I need to talk this over with my husband. But internally, I was always like, yes, yes, I'm going to take it right away. Um, so I get to work remotely from home. And it's the Children's Mental Health, um, it's the Children's Mental Health Resource Center.org. And it's a nonprofit where we help support caregivers and parents who are raising children with mental illness. And our primary focus is on mood disorders, uh, but we do like to capture people who um, are autistic and maybe experiencing, um, their children are experiencing great difficulties such as irritation, like aggressiveness, irritability, uh, mood swings. Children who are diagnosed with ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder where it's truly severe, and not something that um, going through the traditional route um, through their pediatrician and medication, like that just hasn't touched it. Uh, maybe people who have a diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. And our, our focus is to help provide um, resources for those families. So we still have the support group that we do. And we also have a program an educational program where we can, through the use of technology, 
attend their school meetings and make appropriate suggestions for accommodations and modifications and really work as a team to support that child because teachers and administrators and and staff don't know about every single mental illness. And um, that's not necessarily their role to know about all of those things, right? So we are the experts who help come in and say, um, here are some things that you may want to know about this, this child And this is how the symptoms manifest. And here are some ways that you can possibly make some accommodations to to support them or some modifications to their IEP or 504. All right, Jennifer, can you tell people one more time what the website is and how they can best support the work of the organization and possibly get in touch with you? So that's your chance right now. You can be shameless. Just plug, plug, plug. (laughs) Sure. So we have lots of different services besides the educational um, advocacy program. We also are uh, doing diagnostic consults so we can help uh, providers uh, into the point them into the right direction of like what this diagnosis might be. A lot of people have they come to us with all these other diagnoses, and then we're able to to, um, provide some more information and more data that is more targeted so that the provider can make um, a more uh, clear diagnosis. And um, we also have a book club that we're starting. And so parents are are free to join us and we discuss a book um, that is useful to caregivers and even therapists. Um, so everybody is welcome to join. Our first one is on The Bipolar Child by Dimitri Papalos. And um, our website is a Children's Mental Health Resource Center, but it's the initials. So it's cmhrc.org. And they can reach us there. We have so many services that we're doing. We have webinars. We have blogs that we answer questions that parents have. We are going to be putting together a podcast. Um, There's some things in the work for homeschooling support because so many children who live with severe and persistent mental illness, um, traditional school settings aren't always the place that they can be. And so while they're being homed at school, we want to be able to provide support for for those families. And so we have a lot of things that are in the works that we're doing. Um, We're new and we're growing and we're excited. And um, it's the parents who inspire us and it's all about the children. Um, So ultimately, those children can have and live um, a quality life. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for the openness, for telling us about your life, and for echoing that kindness truly is everything. It is the kindness of other people that fed you the strength you needed in your darkest hours. And I think everyone out there should make it a mission this week to try and channel that kindness as you approach your neighbors, colleagues, random strangers. Also, thank you, my dear story sharers out there, for listening to this world premiere of Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. Episode one is over. Wow. You cannot feel my heart racing right now, but just know that a lot of sweat, 
tears, anxiety, and sleepless nights made this podcast possible. If I did my job right, you are feeling a little warm and fuzzy right about now because there's nothing more inspiring than real stories of real people. Of course, I also want to send all our best to Jennifer, Kurt, and Parker. Don't forget to visit cmhrc.org, the website of Jennifer's nonprofit. Again, that is cmhrc.org. And now it is your turn. If you can still feel the tingle from this human interest experiment Thoughtvolution would like to be, please rate, review, and share our podcast. Tell the world to forget about billionaires and celebrities and politics and bickering and to instead listen to the stories of normal people. And what about you? Do you have a question for Jennifer that she may answer in a follow-up episode? Or do you want to share your very own story with me? You can get in touch with us in a number of ways. There's a contact form on our website, www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. You can also email us at info at thoughtvolutionpodcast.com or call our virtual voicemail number at 864-501-5033. Again, that is 864-501-5033 to leave a voicemail message. I cannot wait to hear from you. And the world should really hear your story. So don't wait. I will see y'all next week with another fascinating person's journey. In the meantime, be safe, be kind, and be a thoughtvolutionist. <laughs>